Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Lord Jesus, uh, as we say thank you in everything, um, we pray. We pray because we are grateful people uh, whom even as we'll see later on in Luke, uh, that we ask for more and you as a gracious, loving father delight to give us more. So Lord, give us more clarity this morning. Give us more repentance this morning. Give us more worship this morning. Uh, And Lord, despite all of that, we can wonderfully say that for those who have come to you in the cross of Jesus, you cannot give us any more Jesus. For you have given him all to us, unreserved through faith in the cross. So we ask simply that you make us more like him. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, we've been working at Sovereign Hope here since, uh, for a number of months here, through the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke 8, which is the chapter we're beginning today, uh, we're going to begin to see next week Jesus' parables on the kingdom of God. He's going to give us word pictures of what the kingdom of God is like. But we're going to pause for a little bit today on these three short verses, where before Luke begins to tell us what Jesus says about the kingdom of God, He's going to show us something about the kingdom of God by highlighting Jesus' followers. And just to see this, like kind of contextually, we're seeing what Jesus' missionary context is right now. And we're also seeing who his mission companions are right now. So this is Luke 8, verses 1 through 3. Soon afterwards, he went through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And so Luke's gospel is kind of arranged geographically. And so he's up in this northern part right now, but we're coming on this time where Jesus is going to set his face towards Jerusalem, this long path of discipleship towards the cross. But here he's continuing his itinerant ministry in northern Judea. But what Luke is doing is what he's already done numerous times in the book of Luke. And he is showing what the center of Jesus's ministry is, despite his miraculous healings and his other miracles. He's showing us the core of Jesus. Jesus' ministry is proclaiming and bringing the gospel of God. We see one of Luke's favorite words that he's running to here. Uh, He is literally gospeling. Jesus is good newsing. That's that word proclaiming the good news. It's the root of it. It's the verbal form of gospel. It's good newsing. It's happening all over. And the gospel, which Jesus is good newsing, if you don't know what the gospel is, The gospel is simply the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. And that's the most profound truth you'll ever hear. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But at this point, what Luke wants us to see is this message that he is gospeling, this message that he is proclaiming is attracting people and not just interested parties, but followers, people who are traveling with him, people who are supporting him. His message is captivating and commissioning people to something new. And this is why we're stopping and pausing on this text, because here in this text, we see the apostles, and we see a spectacular and singled out group of women. 
We're committed to expositional preaching here at Sovereign Hope, which is letting the Bible dictate what we're going to talk about. And we're committed to this because we believe that God's word is inerrant, unfailing, profitable at every word to present us mature in Christ, which means when we look at God's word, we confess not only its pervasive truthfulness, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, we profess, we profess its necessary usefulness that it's good for us, that it helps us, it changes us. And so we're pausing on these, not merely because it seems to be a contextual introduction to the parable of the sower, this great stunning truth of Jesus that follows, but because there's something for us in this today. And there's two things we're gonna note. First is we're gonna see in this text a reaffirmation of Luke's consistent theme of what he's been showing throughout his gospel, and that is that anyone can follow Jesus because anyone can be saved by Jesus. But anyone who is saved by Jesus is someone who is then called to follow the path of Jesus, called to the path of the kingdom of God. That's conversion. It's being called to something for something else. And that's our main point today. The gospel enables anyone to walk with Jesus, being healed by Jesus for the service of Jesus. So we see clearly in this text are those who were with him, who had been healed by him, and who were serving him. But secondly, and actually where Luke spends the majority of his words in this text, is we're going to approach this call of conversion and discipleship through the lens of gender. Luke spends most of his time talking about these spectacular women. And this is timely in our culture, given everything that's going on today. We're up in arms over gender, about men and women in just about every sphere, from transgenderism to the overturning of Roe versus Wade. One New York Times columnist penned an opinion piece this week, which she titled, The Far Right and the Far Left Agree on One Thing. Women don't count. She concludes by saying this. She says, whether Trumpist or traditionalist, Fringe left activists or academic ideologue, misogynists from both extremes of the political spectrum, relish equally the power to shut women up. So the struggle, this war against language that's employed by our culture, is not simply or merely a Christian issue. It is actually a cultural issue. It exists in humanity at large. But it is an issue which, though far-reaching, is spoken to and addressed most clearly by the Christian gospel and the Christian story. It makes the most sense of it and provides the most hope in the midst of it because God is the one who created male and female. I come from a family. Uh, my cousins are mainly men. My dad's family is mainly men. All of the grandkids in that family tree is mainly men. I started with a man child, and then all of a sudden, I have three daughters now in the midst of it. It was unexpected for me to run into such pervasive uh, tension between the males and the females in my home, but it was never unexpected for God. God knew. God created us, male and female. It's not a side effect that God had to get used to. This, according to Genesis 1, 27 and Ephesians 1, 
was the preordained plan of God to create serving him a populace of men and women, which means this present hostility, this awkwardness, this tension that exists in our world and throughout all of history is the result, not of God who created gender, but of sin which distorts it. Of the hostility we have in our own hearts, of the curse of sin that stain God's perfect creation. But in the midst of texts like this, we see the wonderful hope of creation regained, of peace restored. Luke's inclusion of Jesus' followers here is therefore not merely an introduction to the kingdom parables, but it's actually a picture of what the people of God look like in the kingdom of God. Just as Jesus' miracles show us the supernatural glimpse of the future kingdom that will come in the new heavens and the new earth, so here in Jesus' followers, we get a future glimpse of what that restored life looks like as well. That is a glimpse of unity and diversity of individuals captured by an experience of gospel glory in Jesus Christ. And not only do we see the general beauty and transformative power of the gospel in this passage, but we see If you have ears to hear, we see the third way our world needs today. It's neither far left nor far right. It is the way of Jesus. And yet this is not the middle way. Christianity lives on the extremes. It is a matter of life and death. It is a matter not of passive comfort, but of radical repentance and costly sacrifice. But this gospel way is the good way that gets us what we see in this text. It gets us the presence of Jesus, peace with others, and purpose in all of life. Our slogan here at Sovereign Hope is gospel change for all of life. And that changes everything about who we are, what we do, and how we perceive ourselves. And so with that said, we're going to look at three distinct relationships inside of this call to conversion and discipleship. And first, we're going to see men and women in the kingdom. And then we're going to look at women and Jesus in the kingdom. And then lastly, and generally, we're going to get a glimpse of disciples and Jesus in the kingdom. And we see these relationships beginning to build because in Luke 8, verses 1 and 2, we already begin to see these two groups of people who Luke is wanting to tell us about who are intimately following Jesus and assisting his ministry at this point. Those two, you probably saw already in the couple times we read it, are the 12 and this group of women. Luke's general term for anyone who follows Jesus in his gospel is simply a disciple. Discipleship and being a disciple, we talk a lot about that at Sovereign Hope. That is not for the the go-getter church members. That is not for the person who was raised in a Christian home. That is not for the elite spiritualist who like reading old dead men. To be a disciple is to be a follower of Jesus. Discipleship is not an option. Discipleship is the way. We can't be saved apart from following Jesus. And so while disciples are the general group of men and women, young and old who follow Jesus, Luke also makes the distinction of the 12. That is, these specific men who were chosen by Jesus out of the group of disciples to be apostles. We saw this happen a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 6, verse 13, where it says, When day came, Jesus called his disciples, that's the broad group of anyone who was following Jesus at that time, and he chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. So these apostles were disciples, 
but they were hand chosen by Jesus to be the representatives of this new spiritual people, this fulfillment of God's promise to circumcise our hearts, to set us free. And they were of the the disciples, but distinct from the disciples. They went on to be founders of the Christian church. And here we see those two groups again, but they're different. It's not in a Luke 6 sense where there are the 12 and there are the disciples, but it's in this Luke 8 sense where now we have the the 12 and we have this distinct group of women. And both were with Jesus. And that's important here. When it comes to Jesus showing us the kingdom of God, there are men and women who, though different, have the same privilege in being saved by and serving Jesus. And this is our first point today. Men and women in the kingdom. And again, I can't understate for us the uniqueness of what Luke was doing in our own day and even in his, his specific day. He was speaking of the men, the superstars, who would go on to become prophetic pillars of the New Testament church. And in the same breath, he mentions these radically ordinary and yet supernaturally remembered women. Paul does something similar at the end of his book in Romans where he says this as he's giving his long greeting to the church. He says in Romans uh, 16 verse 7, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. And so here, well known to the apostles is this woman whose name is Junia. And these subtle inclusions show the beautiful third way of the gospel. There is a distinction between the women and the apostles, just as there's a distinction between the apostles and the other general male disciples who were following Jesus. These women were women, and they were not apostles. Yet despite the distinction between these two groups, apostles and non-apostles, male and female, there was, we see in this passage in Luke, a shared value, a shared purpose, and a shared enjoyment. These women, many women who Luke is talking about here, three being specifically named, are those who loved Jesus who were not males, who were not apostles, and yet their encounter with Jesus, much like the woman Daniel preached on last week, was so profound and so captivated their hearts that they didn't need to be anything else in order to be saved by, satisfied with, and joyfully serving the mission of Jesus. So much so that the Holy Spirit has preserved throughout history them in the same breath as these pillars of the faith, the apostles. You see, maleness is not femaleness, and femaleness is not maleness. There's something distinct and implicit to who we are, and God created this distinction. God even created in different ways in the context of the church and in the context of marriage that depending upon that gender, you would have a different role in each of those realities. And while there is something innate and distinct to both sexes, It is not that maleness is innately privileged and femaleness innately just gets whatever falls off the table. You see, gender matters deeply in some areas and matters less in others. In regards to certain roles, it matters, but in regards to other much larger realities, it matters less. Take, for instance, the office of elder, as presented in scripture. Elder and pastor are synonymous. We're a church, and we have elders who are also pastors, and pastors who are also elders. That's the same word biblically. 
And biblically speaking, the office of elder is reserved for men. Therefore, being a male, maleness, masculinity, is a requirement to be an elder. But it's not a qualification for it. Now, here's what I mean by that. There were no women who were apostles or pastors in the New Testament. But there were also many, many men who were fully male who also were not apostles and elders in the New Testament. Being a male does not mean you are automatically privileged over others to certain roles. It does mean you meet a requirement, but it doesn't innately qualify you for privilege. In other words, who God makes you to be in the womb of your mother, as male or female, is drastically important. But it is actually less important than who God makes you in the power of the Holy Spirit after God has saved you who he progresses you to be and grows you in the midst of that. And we know that. Ladies, I was down at the farmer's market the other day. I saw many, many men. Biologically, each and every one of those men is husband material. (laughs) They possess the chromosomes they need to be male. But we know that being biologically human material is not the same, or biologically husband material is not the same as being husband material. (laughs) We know there's a difference there. And biblically speaking, qualified, called, and competent men are to be elders according to the requirement of gender. But it's based on more than just simply their gender. Paul says husbands are to be the head of their wives as Christ is the head of the church. But some men who meet the biological requirement for headship shouldn't even be the head of a screwdriver, let alone the head of a wife or of a church. That doesn't mean there's not an innate God-given distinction betwixt the two of those, but it does mean that our worth and our value as individuals is not purely determined by the roles we are allowed to meet. It's based on who the Holy Spirit has has, uh, changed us to be by the weight of grace in Jesus Christ. And we see this when some scholars encounter um, Junia in Romans 16. Because she was well-known among the apostles, many uh, liberal theologians try to play with the Greek grammar and say, well, because she was well-known of the apostles, she therefore must have been an apostle, and that's why she's valued. Therefore, women can be apostles, and apostles were women. And that sounds really affirming, but do you realize what that actually undercuts in the text? Because it says that Junia could have only been known, only been valued, only been a compatriot of them if she met this role. But the gospel, the third way, presents something beautiful. And that's that Junia got to be well-known amongst the apostles simply for being Junia. Not because of the role she fulfilled, but because of who she was in Jesus Christ. It affirms that we are, that we have roles, but we are far more than our roles. The world cannot understand. We've seen this all throughout Luke. The world cannot understand value and meaning without borrowing the structures of the world. It's always in something outside of us. Our ability to contribute, our ability to be valued is based off of if you can achieve the highest level of something in some position. And if that's not there, then you have less value, you have less meaning, and you have less purpose. 
But the gospel presents value based off your relationship to the person of value who is Jesus Christ. Here, these women, though not apostles, were so profoundly valuable to Jesus that the Holy Spirit preserved a eulogy for them throughout all of history. Our culture tries to tell us that who we are and the value we have is based off of what we can achieve, who we can marry, or who we are sexually attracted to. But the way of the kingdom gives something better. It says your value is based off your relationship to the God who created you and his son who has redeemed you. Consider Paul's words in Galatians uh, chapter 3, verses excuse me, 27 through 28. For as many of you as we're baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so who has value and purpose in the kingdom of God? What is this glimpse of the kingdom showing us? Men and women have value and purpose in the kingdom of God. Moms and dads have value and purpose in the kingdom of God. Waitresses and mailmen have kingdom and purpose, or uh, purpose and value in the kingdom of God because they have been saved by Jesus and commissioned to ministry. You see, all throughout Luke's two books, that is the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, Luke holds to the biblical picture of male-only apostles and male-only elders. And yet more than any other gospel writer, Luke shows us Jesus' heart for women and these women's heart for Jesus. And we get to see this relationship in our next point, which is women and Jesus in the kingdom. Read with me Luke 8 again. You guys are going to know these verses really well by the time we're done, which I guess is the scope of a good sermon. So know the text even if you forget me. Uh, Luke 2, or 8, 2, and 3. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their own means. So I have three daughters. I know that those three daughters are presently growing up in a world where the default message to them regarding Christianity is that Christianity is anti-women. And what I want, Adley and Ellie, I see you girls right there. You don't have to stand, Adley, but I love you. (laughs) What I want them to see, what I want you to see, if you're a young woman in here today, is simply by looking at this text, that it is categorically and intellectually false that Christianity is anti-women. And in fact, to say Christianity is anti-women is sociologically to make an anti-woman statement. A 2016 study of 192 countries found that it was women more than men who confessed to be Christian. The same study says that it is women more than men who attend church regularly and have habits of prayer and Bible reading. While data is hard to find given the persecution in that country, In China, a country whose population is uh, drastically male because of sex-selective abortions, it is reported with the information we have that the underground persecuted Christian church in China is two-thirds female to one-third male. Globally, historically, here in this passage in Luke, we see a group of many women who saw in Jesus Christ 
despite all of the difficulties, something which could save, satisfy, and bring purpose that nothing else in the whole of the world could do. In this gospel, in this good news, was something innately beautiful for them that saves them. And we already see this happening. In fact, you could go back and look. I did it in my study this week in preparation for this. Go back and look at all the instances of women in the book of Luke so far. And it's profound. They have been the superstars of the story so far. Now in contemporary religions of Jesus, Jesus is a superstar. They're like superstar. Uh, Jesus is superstar one, and then we get letters. And they're the first of the letters. Um, now in the contemporary day of Jesus' time, it wouldn't have been odd for a teacher a leader like this to gather female support, to have them support him. But most of those relationships became sexually exploitive in nature. But Jesus never was. And our culture often speaks of the war against women with Christianity in mind, us being the primary offenders of that. But when you look from a historical perspective, two things are very clear. First, whenever any heretical sect broke off from the true preached gospel of Jesus Christ, women suffered. It inevitably turned into some sort of sexually deviant practice in which women were made commodities and properties. Throughout history, look and see. Look even in many of the monotheistic religions which claim Christian roots today. Such practices, when that happens, does not come as a direct result of nearness to Jesus but actually your distance from Jesus. There are sinful people in the church. There are sinful men in the church. There have been abuses in the church. There have been mistreatment of women in the church. That is not because they look so much like Jesus, but because they look so little like Jesus. When we leave the gospel, women suffer. But secondly, in societies where sexual freedom was given to the masses, where we got to decide what to do with our bodies and when to do it, when it was elevated and Christian marriage was undermined, again, this is sociologically true, women suffered. This is true today, and it's in part why the overturning of Roe versus Wade incites such terror into our cultural imagination. For many, the removal of abortion brings fear into their life because of the reality of God's innate construction of gender where women are biologically more vulnerable than male. And here's what I mean by that. I mean, the true war against women is not from people who wish to protect babies and walk with women on painful, dangerous, ostracizing roads, but it's against men who get women pregnant and run away. Biologically speaking, a woman cannot run from her pregnancy, but a man sure can. And in places where that dynamic is undermined, the vulnerable suffer. And sinful as those decisions might be for the woman who is complicit in it, the weight of this burden and the potential cost to her family, to her career, to her relationship is weighty. It's significant. And this is why the church needs to help in a number of ways. And to a degree, all I want to do when I see people talking about the church being anti-women is to boast about all the things the church does for women. But here's the thing. We don't do it to defend ourselves to the world. We do it to honor Jesus. We do care 
what others think of us. That's a requirement to being an elder, to be well thought of by outsiders. But our value, our mission, our call is not to be judged on the Facebook pages and Twitter streams of our world. It is to be lived in light of each and every one of us who will stand before God one day and give account for all that we have done in the body, whether evil or good. We love whether the world sees it as lovely or not. And so there are three simple ways where we can start to do this right now. The first is that we should support these women. We just had a fundraiser for CareNet. There are many other ways we could do this. And I've made mention of this before, but over a third of all women who get an abortion identify as churchgoers. That means that discussions on the grace of Jesus and the care of the church needs to start here, not out there. It means that we need to walk a a life and a doctrine which shows that the way forward is repentance and that Jesus is gracious to forgive all who come to him, that there is no unforgivable sin except to not come and to also show them that the church is a place where we care for those who are simultaneously sinners and saints. And we show them that as hard as it might be, we are to fight for the joy of honoring Jesus in everything. It means caring for them. It means helping out with foster care. It means babysitting and helping a single mom. It means doing things not just where we write a check, but where we show up with our time, our relational energies, and our efforts. It also means, secondly, that we should support and challenge men in our church body and in our homes. God made men differently. There's something innate to both masculinity and femininity, and that is God-ordained. But the call to men is to selflessly serve others with all of the strength God provides and not to selfishly take and gain from the vulnerable. For every woman who is made pregnant, there's a man who also needs the good news of gospel correction and gospel comfort. Men right here today, there are eyes watching you as to how you treat your wives, how you treat your sisters in the faith, how you treat your little sisters and your big sisters biologically, do we show them how Jesus loved his sisters and his bride? On that note, lastly, we should fight for the health of our marriages, those which already exist, and those that, Lord willing, will exist. Marriages, sinful, broken, imperfect marriages in light of the gospel are difficult places to live And yet, they are privileged places where the mercy of God works to protect the vulnerable and the weak. And we want to move towards these three things, not because women need husbands or because women need the church. Both those are good gifts, but we lean into those things because more than anything, women need Jesus. And these acts of obedience cause us to walk nearer and nearer to the same Jesus who we see in this text is this Jesus who takes broken individuals and loves them back to wholeness and boldness. And that's what we saw here. These are women who are healed from infirmities, physically and spiritually, who then are commissioned to service. They go through the love of Jesus to wholeness and boldness. And we might bristle at this because we might say, well, this is innately like misogynistic again. Why is it that women need to be made whole and bold? Why is, why is it that they are always the weak ones? But this misses the whole point of Luke's gospel up until this point, doesn't it? Everyone needs to be made whole and bold. 
It's not that these women were so weak and broken that they needed a savior. It's that everyone is so weak and broken that they need a savior. They are just the ones who get it. They're the ones who understand, and it's actually their right understanding of their weakness, a right understanding of their sin that gives them their greatest strength. It is a direct fulfillment of what Jesus said earlier in Luke, that the least in the kingdom of God is the greatest. And what's profound about messages like this is that we not only see Jesus' love for women, he's Jesus, he's supposed to love everybody, but we actually see women's love for Jesus. These women, like the sinful woman we saw last week, love much and give much because they have been forgiven much and given much. As we read this text, we see that these women were with Jesus, they were healed by Jesus, and they served Jesus. But we can see there's a distinct order to this process, and it reads like this. These women, if you look at Luke 8, they were presently with Jesus, but they had previously been healed by Jesus, and now they were actively putting themselves to the support of Jesus, serving him out of their own means. And so in Luke 6, we saw Jesus' own definition of discipleship. And what did Jesus say? He says, if anyone comes to me, hears my word, and does them. That's the call to discipleship. What does it look like to follow Jesus? Come to Jesus, hear Jesus' words, and do something with those words. And we see that repeated here. These women have come to Jesus, but they have not only heard Jesus, they have been healed by Jesus. And then they have committed their lives to serving him. This is what life in the kingdom of God looks like, regardless of whether you're male or female. While on earth, Jesus fixed both realities, both physical and spiritual. He was like a full gospel eclipse that came. And for a moment, we got to see the true realities of that world, which was yet to come. And when people come to Jesus, we are healed even today, spiritually, fully by Jesus. Our dead souls are made alive. Our dead hearts are made to breathe. Our scales on our eyes are lifted. And now we get to spend the rest of our lives walking with Jesus in relational intimacy with this loving, beautiful king. And then we get to serve the joyful needs of his ministry. In Missoula's crazy housing market, I know potential buyers, we did this when we bought our first house back when we thought it was crazy. We paid a whopping $170,000 for it. It was bonkers, I tell you. Um, we wrote a letter. And the point of that letter is to, you know, set yourself apart. We're distinct this is why we deserve this home. Think of the potential. This is going to be, it's like a Hallmark movie in a letter. Buy our, let us buy your house. And this is how the way of the world works. Is you could leverage yourself and then you get what you want. But the way of the gospel is different. And what we see in this text is that we don't have to walk to Jesus with our letters of recommendation. You don't have to spend time thinking about what it looks like to be invited into life with Jesus. Instead, you get to walk with Jesus with the confession of our honest, sinful, broken need. And those people who honestly confess their sinful, broken need get the privilege of dwelling with him, of walking alongside of him. To be healed by Jesus, we merely take our sins to Jesus. We go to him and the cross does the rest. That's the beauty of the gospel. But to taste the love of Jesus in the cross of Jesus is to come out the entire, the, the other side, completely different. Conversion means you're different. It means what you did in the past is no longer even available to you or useful. You've been commissioned to something else. 
There's no better good news for men than this gospel. There's no better good news for women than this gospel. There's no better kingdom to live in than a kingdom where anyone can come to Jesus and experience his love and find deep purpose in their newfound service. And the cool thing about this is in Luke's gospels, we continue. Whatever affection these women have for Jesus is so profound that no one endures in Luke's storyline like these women. It is specifically, he clarifies, we're in Galilee now. Luke clarifies in his changing chapters that at the cross, it was these Galilean women who stood at the cross when even Jesus' apostles fled. It was these Galilean women who went to the tomb as the first visitors on Resurrection Sunday. It was these Galilean women, you realize, who first proclaimed the message of resurrection from the dead in a historic time frame where it was Jesus who rose from the dead. And this is our final point today, and this is disciples and Jesus in the kingdom. While we see Luke explicitly make mention of many women who supported Jesus, these many women are of great encouragement to any who would follow Jesus. Anyone who follows Jesus is called to a life of serving Jesus, and these women ought to light a fire in your own heart. You see, women in the Roman world were already seen as second-class citizens by simply being female, which makes their conversion so profound because it meant that whatever hard-fought capital they had gained for honor and respect in the Roman world was completely thrown away when they converted to Christianity. They lost it all, but they did this because, like Paul, they considered all of it as rubbish to be counted worthy of the cause of Christ. They did all of this because they saw the kingdom. They realized that they were not motivated by worldly power, but by gospel grace and the eternal hope in the gospel. There is great hope for all of us in this. J.C. Ryle, an old English pastor said, I normally don't quote at length in my sermons, but I thought this was so beautiful, so compelling to me as both a man, as a pastor, and as a father that I wanted to share it with you. He says of this text, it was not a woman who sold the Lord, or it was not a woman who sold the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. They were not women who forsook the Lord in the garden and fled. It was not a woman who denied him three times in the high priest's house. But they were women who wailed and lamented when Jesus was led forth to be crucified. They were women who stood to the last by the cross. They were women who were first to visit the grave where the Lord lay. Great indeed is the power of grace, of the grace of God. Let the recollections of these women encourage all the daughters of Adam who read them to take up the cross and follow Christ. Let no sense of weakness or fear of falling away keep them back from a decided profession of religion. The mother of a large family with limited means may tell us that she has no time for religion. The wife of an ungodly husband may tell us that she does not dare take up religion. The, so we have a bad relationship to religion. It's a biblical word James talks about. Don't be scared of religion. Be scared of less than the gospel. But religion here is talking about following Jesus through the gospel. The young daughter of worldly parents may tell us that it is impossible for her to have any religion. The maid ser earth servant in the midst of her unconverted companions may tell us that her place, in her place a person cannot follow religion, but they are all wrong, quite wrong. With Christ, nothing is impossible. 
Let them think again and change their minds. Let them begin boldly in the strength of Christ and trust him for the consequence. The Lord never changes. He who enabled many women to serve him faithfully while he was on earth can enable women to serve him, glorify him, and be his disciples at the present day. Who has something with which to serve Jesus? Anyone who has been loved by him. Male or female, young or old, crippled or capable, genius or struggling with dyslexia. The beauty of the church is that it was founded, that Christ has already appointed foundations, and it is not you. It was the prophets and then the apostles who built on the foundation of Christ who is the head. Christianity is not man-centric. Christianity is not woman-centric. Christianity is Christocentric. Jesus fulfills that role for us. And what we see is even though God has appointed pastors and elders in place, even though apostles and prophets had come before, the work and service of ministry is not exclusive to a role, but the pervasive reality of all who are loved by Jesus. It is the scope of Ephesians 4.12, where all of those who are in authority are meant to equip the saints for the work of ministry. To walk with Jesus is to be loved by Jesus, and to be loved by Jesus is to be put in service of Jesus with all of the riches he gives us in redemption. When the emperor Trajan was persecuting the church less than 100 years after Jesus' death, one of his minions, whose name was Pliny, uh, wrote a letter in 112. And he was telling the emperor what he was doing to stamp out this growing Christian church. And he wrote him a letter where he said this. He said, I judge it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. So here, by worldly standards, in the Roman world, were two female slaves, a social status which was lowest to the bottom, and yet slaves to the world. They were deacons to the church. Held by worldly standards in bondage to labor, they were set free by the gospel to labor in love to the church. Their role in the eyes of the world was that to be avoided at all cost. Their role through the eyes of the gospel was freedom to do whatever they had for the glory of God. And even here, not only do we see women in the church rising to places where God would allow women to be in the church, but we see despite torture, they professed nothing other than the truths of the gospel what Pliny called depraved superstition. They weren't squealers. They were sister saints who endured much because their hearts loved much. Here we see Joanna, the wife of Chusa, who worked directly for Herod's enemy. Great was her risk, or for Jesus' enemy, Herod. Great was her risk in following Jesus, more her risk in financially supporting Jesus, and yet she considered the reproach of Christ greater than all the treasures of Rome. Here is Mary Magdalene, of whom we know a bit more in the biblical story, yet we see her without a husband in the Gospels, and Susanna, of which we know almost nothing. And in these two women is great hope for anyone who finds themselves single, whether widowed or by age. Marriage is a wonderful God-ordained gift to his church and to his world, but it is so, it's a pervasive problem where sometimes we feel that we have nothing to offer for the church unless we find ourselves in a marriage relationship. How many men feel that they cannot serve, they cannot lead, they cannot use their strength lest they do it as a husband or as a father? 
How many women feel they have nothing to offer the church except being a wife who loves and cares for her husband and her children? All of those are God created. They are good. They are noble. They are desirable. But service of the kingdom calls you and equips you to serve Jesus now with what Jesus has already given you. These women, these sisters supported Jesus with what they already had. They in this moment had the financial ability to underwrite Jesus' traveling ministry, and they did so with eager zeal. What a great picture of unity and diversity inside of the church, where those who were called to preach the gospel were supported by those who were called to believe and support the gospel. We saw earlier when Jesus called some of his apostles, they left everything. Indeed, in Matthew 19, Jesus says, unless you've left everything to follow me, you will not have anything. And Peter comes to Jesus and says, Matthew, have not we, the 12, left everything? And Jesus says, you have left everything behind. And while the call to follow Jesus does call some to leave everything, it calls many more to give everything. To look at your life and realize that if we've been saved by Jesus and if we're walking with Jesus, then we have something of use to Jesus. And that we could use it to support him and support others to that end. Might we all show our world a glimpse of this kingdom by finding peace with one another through the blood of Christ, being healed by Jesus and living for the service of Jesus with all that we have because we have been loved much. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you heal all who come, that those who come though perhaps not oppressed by demons, perhaps not lame in our legs, are sinful and dead in our hearts. And yet you save us. Just as you created us, male and female, so you save us, male and female. And Lord, I pray that this church, that this body of men and women, young and old, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different stages of life, different desires, different hobbies, that we show the world what it looks like to be saved into the kingdom of God. That our actions and our affections are glimpses of Jesus who drew near to the weak and the vulnerable and gave them value and purpose, walking with him, being healed by him and serving him. Lord, we ask that our church look even less like who the world wants the church to look like and more like Jesus who has made the church. We pray this in your name, amen.